All right, we only have one uh, scripture reading uh, this evening um, from First Thessalonians four. We'll read the whole chapter. My sermon will uh, primarily it'll focus on verses three through six. Uh, but let's read First Thessalonians. Uh, Chapter 4, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, and that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you and testified, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He, therefore, that despiseth despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it towards all the brethren which are in all of Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without, outside the church, and that you may have lack of nothing. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Have you ever had the conversation with someone? Maybe you were asking the question, or they were, or both of you were, about knowing God's will for your life. You know, a lot of uh, people, when they're uh, transitioning into adulthood, right, they're, they're concerned about that. What is... What is God's will for my life? Or, or you'll often hear some young person say, I don't even know what I want to do yet. Right. Most of the time, questions like this are framed in totally modern ways. What you often mean by discerning God's will for your life is, where am I going to live? Or what am I going to do for a living? Now, the apostles, they lived and wrote in a time where those two questions had essentially no relevance whatsoever. Where am I going to live? Maybe you would ask someone in the first century. Undoubtedly, they would say, 
where I live right now? Or, what do you mean? I'll live where I'm from. Or the question, what am I going to do? Their answer would probably be, I'm going to do what my family does. The thought never crossed my mind to do anything else. Truly, times were simpler then. Now we're raised to train our sons and daughters to do anything but discern the Lord's providence. You want to go to college in Timbuktu? No problem. We'll miss you, but go ahead. You want to get into so much debt in college that you'll never be able to be a stay-at-home mom, since, of course, your husband won't make enough money to pay for all that debt, and you'll have to work. No problem, honey. That's your dream. Go ahead. Son, if you want to spend the rest of your days making that big check, doing a job you really can't stand with people you really can't stand, don't worry. You don't have to talk to them. Just go ahead. The money is good. What is God's will for your life? These and many like conversations take place, and we have no idea how far the assumptions are that we bring into that conversation are actually away from biblical thinking. We're assuming the corruption of our times simply by asking the questions. And we do it without examining it. What does this have to do with our text? (laughs) These types of questions, they crowd our minds. They consume our existence. And we're either overwhelmed with making the decision or we're overwhelmed with the implications of having already made that decision. We're unable to even fathom what it means to speak rightly about the will of God for our lives. And because of this, the answer that Paul gives is just overly simplistic. That can't be it, right? This was not just the will of God for the Thessalonians. It is the will of God for every Christian in every age. Your chief focus in life as a Christian, a Christian who is Trusting the promise, as we heard this morning, the chief focus of your life is to be sanctification. That is, living a holy life. Now, there's a right understanding of this that we must have. Sanctification is an outworking of what God is working in. There are two terms. We talk about definitive sanctification, where God has definitely, irreversibly, in Christ, set us apart and sanctified us as his own. But in light of that, God calls us to live. And we call that progressive sanctification, where we grow in holiness. And the latter is what Paul is talking about, to grow in holiness. And with this understanding, we'll now turn to a question. Why does Paul only point to fornication. I think he is using fornication as a word I used in in Sunday school this morning as a synecdoche, which is using one term to refer to many things or a part for the whole. It doesn't mean that the only thing the Thessalonians need to worry about or the only thing they had to worry about was sexual immorality or fornication. And I think verses 4 5 and 6 make that clear, but we'll get into that. So another question, what is fornication? And I'm going to be very generic here because it lends itself to the point I'm going to try to make from this text. Fornication 
not, uh, as we've been studying in Sunday school, remember, fornication is like level one of sexual sin. It's, to summarize it, um, relations with someone who is not your spouse, whether you're married or not, more or less. It is the carrying out of a desire that would lead you to go beyond and to defraud yourself or someone else. Fornication is the carrying out of a desire, right? Every sin begins with a desire. It's a desire that would lead you to go beyond what God intends and to defraud yourself or someone else. You see, I'm bringing in what Paul says in verse 6. Fornication is a sexual sin, yes. But what is actually happening in fornication? It isn't normally in the Bible associated with unnatural desires. It is natural for men to desire women and women to desire men. And in the Bible, when fornication is used, it's talking about going beyond the limits of that desire. And it's when natural desires are not kept in check, and they do, as Paul says, they go beyond and they defraud. Or to use what he says in the previous verse, they're giving into the lust of concupiscence, that is, those base desires. I don't mean base as in a negative sense necessarily, because adultery, fornication, doesn't necessarily start out as a sinful desire. If you're desiring someone who's not your spouse, that's wrong. But at its most base level, sexual desire for someone of the opposite sex is not wrong, right? As long as it's your spouse, as long as it's uh, you know, guarded by marriage. But giving in to the lust of concupiscence and going beyond God's limitations and defrauding is the issue. That's what fornication is. It is the name of a type of a series of acts that flow from what Paul calls the lust of concupiscence. Let me try to argue this point by um, two more examples. Uh, The desire to eat, not wrong. But the act of being gluttonous is wrong, right? You go beyond the right fulfillment of hunger. You desire to provide for your family and to make a good name for yourself. Neither of those are wrong. But how are you going to do it, right? You don't pursue it in a crooked way. You keep that desire in check and you do it in a godly way. All of those examples, those two and then the one I used about fornication, begin with a desire that is not wrong, but when the lust of concupiscence, the lust of those Basic desires, and even here, lust is not necessarily wrong. Lust is simply desire, strong desire, right? There is a type of lust that's always wrong, right? But he's not using it in that way here. The lust of concupiscence, that inner desire, when those things are not kept in check, even when they're towards good things, you lose control of your vessel, as he says, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, that is to live in self-control. You are no longer living in sanctification and honor when those desires go wherever, when they leave their boundaries, when they leave that which God has appointed. 
Part of Paul's call to sanctification is to work out where those desires are going to see that they don't go beyond and defraud. So what he's calling them to here is a type of self-examination. Yes, stop fornication if that's an issue. But we also have to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor. We have to live self-controlled and upright lives. We don't live in the lust of concupiscence. We don't go beyond. We see what they call the telos, the end, the, the place in which it's okay to exercise these things and to carry out these desires. This is all the more necessary because we're told the Lord is the avenger of all these who go beyond and defraud in these behaviors. And I've promised you a multitude of, of sermons on fasting or to do with Lent, sort of. Um, but there's an important word that has to do with the practice of fasting in the season of Lent. And it occurs in verse 3. Um, it's uh, on the fourth line in your bulletin, and it's the word abstain. Now, this Greek word, it has a multitude of meanings, but, but what Paul is getting at here is like the idea of distancing yourself, right? You're drawing away from it, as it were, as far as you can. By abstaining, or from, by abstaining from going beyond and defrauding, you're going to get yourself to a place where your most basic desires can be evaluated and readjusted. Have you ever had something in your life that needed just absolutely to be mortified because you knew not just the things that you know you fall into uh, you know gradually and the the sins that nobody really knows about but God but those outward things that people know you need to stop have you ever mortified one of those and then you have to deal with the desires and the temptations to go back to it right you're entering a season when you do that of those desires being pruned. You can't see it while you're living in that sin, but when you step outside of it and when you refrain from it and abstain, you're able to look at those desires and understand them more closely. And maybe you could see how they start as not necessarily something that's wrong, but because you don't live in self-control, they end up going a wrong way, beyond and defrauding. It is true that we are always called to abstain from sin. Amen. But it is not actually possible to be perpetually in a heightened season of self-examination. It's not possible. It's not humanly possible. We are too weak in the flesh. One writer puts it like this. He says that our daily lives should be so lived weighs nothing against having a special season for the training of oneself into this habit. The idea involved is recognized in other ways by those who scoff at Lent. The athlete who hopes to win must submit to abstinence and training greater than he can get on a normal basis. He doesn't do it all the time, but he does do it 
periodically. The lawyer, preparing for an important case, shuts himself up with his books and papers, denies himself the usual harmless pleasures and even comforts until he is ready for the trial. The artist who would reach a high place in art thinks the sacrifice of all that interferes with his special purpose is none too great for the benefit that is gained. Abstinence, abstaining, we all do it. And I'm just calling you to do it. The Lord leads in a way for a season. You may see this as heightening what Paul says or extending it beyond his intent, but I don't believe that that's what I'm doing. If you consider again in verse 4 that possessing one's vessel, right? Think about, it's almost like an outer body experience the way Paul is describing it, right? That you are outside of yourself and you're going to possess yourself. You're going to hold yourself in. And sometimes self-examination feels like that, doesn't it? That you almost have to rise above yourself to see yourself and think about it. But if you consider that that is self-control, and that is in sanctification, and that is an honorable thing, it is essential to this, then when you think about possessing yourself and having self-control, it consists not just in being as far away from sin as possible, but also when you get far from those things, looking at yourself to see what might be leading to that sin. Because even good desires can go beyond and defraud because of how sinful we are. Right? Something is not honorable just because it refrains from heinous acts. Something is honorable because it is fully and wholly given over to purity within and without. Think of a wedding day. I've seen this. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but the point remains. We've had several grooms who show up to their weddings and they'll say something like, I forgot to brush my teeth this morning. Right? Now that sounds like a slight thing, but it's very dishonorable. Right? that you didn't even have the wherewithal to prepare yourself by brushing your teeth. It doesn't honor the occasion. It doesn't honor the woman. Right? Something that is honorable is not just honorable because it refrains from the worst things, but it takes upon itself a full examination, pursuing purity within and without. And then in verse 5, those who live by the lust of their concupiscence, what is Paul saying here? He's saying these people, these Gentiles, I'll explain that in a second, they're those who simply act on their desires. They're like children, really. They're behaving as those outside of covenant with God. A Gentile is worse, though, to bring it modern. A Gentile is worse than someone that we know that has grown up in church and left. A Gentile is someone that Paul says does not know God. Those are people who live by concupiscence. That is, they're just... They live based on their desires. They do what they want. They do whatever they feel. Paul is saying to simply live by desire, even good desires. If it is unrestrained, it is acting without knowledge of God. And lastly, to show I'm not heightening but illuminating what Paul says, consider the implication of the last verse I told you I'd preach on, verse 6, about not going beyond and defrauding. When you go beyond and defraud... It is always going to impact someone else. 
Not just in fornication, but in all sin. Our sin always affects other people. First us, but then others by implication. This going beyond and defrauding idea. Think of it as God drawing a circle and telling you where these desires are meant to end up. Right? If you land outside of that circle, whether the desire was good or bad, you have gone beyond and defrauded, is the implication that Paul is getting at. When you're a father, a husband, a mother, a wife, a brother, sister, son, daughter, whatever it is, your sins always affect others. When you land outside of God's intent, it's always going to affect other people. Perhaps if you're able to refrain from those things and really get down to the root of your desires, you'll be able to discern the truth. You know, I don't, I don't know how many of you have a background in, in sports. I know some of you do. But when you're playing the game, it's a different experience than watching the game. Right? You appreciate things when you're not playing that you don't have time to, and you can't when you are playing. And it's because you're able to step back and look. The practice of Christian fasting is very much like that. You're taking a step back and refraining from things that, are, that can be okay, can be good, can be neutral, certainly things that are bad, and you're examining. You can slow down when you do that and look at it. Kind of practical tips uh, about fasting. Christian fasting is not meant to occur on the Lord's Day. Christ forbade fasting when the bridegroom was with them. And this is actually how we understand the Lord's Day, that Christ comes to be with us in a special way. Because the timing of fasting is left up to Christian liberty, we could still say that it would be improper to fast on the Lord's Day because it's a day of feasting and rejoicing. And that, that principle is actually how you get 40 days of fasting between Ash Wednesday and... Uh, or in the period of Lent, basically, because you refrain from fasting on Sundays. In conclusion, you are required to take holiness this seriously. We've been talking about this in adult Sunday school, talking about Colossians 3, mortification, how it is not just of outward actions, but inward as well. You are required in Scripture and by God to take holiness this seriously as a matter of both internal and external issues. This is because... The depths of Christ's redemption, it doesn't just wipe away our sin externally. It wipes away our sin internally. And the transformation that Christ works in us is one that begins internally. So we are working with Christ, we might say, by his spirit, by examining even to the most base desires of ourselves to see how we could bring them to a proper fulfillment. The salvation of Jesus Christ penetrates the whole person, just as sin does. And we're called to make war on both the fruit and the root of sin. And one of the chief ways to make war in the Christian life is to abstain, even from that which is good at times, to discern where your weaknesses are, and to seek the amending power of the Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus, who has promised this righteousness to all those who would ask for it, in faith. Amen. Let us pray.